Come for the jaunty music, stay for the nuanced literary discourse. Welcome to the inaugural episode of It's Lit But Is It Funny, the podcast where we dissect the live kitten of literary comedy to work out why it's purring. My name is Jonathan Pinnock and I'm the author of the Mathematicals Mystery Series published by Farago Books, described as someone on Goodreads as completely bonkers and who am I to argue. Before we start, I'd just like to say how far outside my comfort zone all this all is. Last night I had an anxiety dream where I suddenly realised I'd completely forgotten to turn up to my own recording, it's that bad. Anyway, our first guest is the brilliant Toby Frost, author of, amongst other things, the Space Captain Smith Hexology, Hexamarin? Hex, Hex I don't know, what's the right word? Oh, gosh, anyway, I don't know. No, uh, the six of them. Space Captain Smith, God Emperor of Didcot, Wrath of the Lemming Men, A Game of Battleships, End of Empires, and The Pincers of Death. Oh, they're, they're all published by Myrbidon, by the way. And more recently, uh, as T.A. Frost, a series of Renaissance fantasy books, Up to the Throne, Blood Underwater, and I believe another one which has not been published yet. But which yes, that's right. Yes, point. that's still got to come. Yeah. Yeah. Great yeah still working on that, along with about <laughs> half a dozen other things. So, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yes, I, 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 first, I first met you about 15 years ago, didn't I? When we. Um, Gosh. Veronal yeah. Writers Circle, which I believe is called Veronal Writers these days. Is, yeah, and, they've dropped the circle, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I think there was a long uh, debate about where the apostrophe went in writers. <laughs> you'd think writers would have had this nailed, you'd, wouldn't you'd, you? No, you'd think writers would probably have a long debate about it, probably. Oh, yeah, good point. But, yes, yeah, I think, yes. but uh, yeah, no, it, it's, um, yeah, they're never quite sure whether there's writers with a, for one writer or more than one. I, I don't know, anyway. But I think they're now called Vernon writers. But I, mean, I was thinking about this, that, that I think when we were most active, uh, there were probably about 40 in the circle, maybe 30 mm. to 40. And I totted up a list of the ones who got publishing deals. And I think I'm right in saying there are at least 11. That's very good. Is about 25% hit rate. Yeah. I mean, that's very people good. like. Kate Allen, Cheryl Alain, Jenny Barden, Steph Broadrib, Leslie Eames, Jeff Gudgeon, J.L. Merrow, Amanda Smith, Dave Weaver, plus Toby, Toby myself. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's more impressive than almost any other forum I've been in, both online and in real life. Yeah, <laughs> very professional. Yeah, a, a slightly better hit rate even than my creative writing MA cohort, which is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know what to say about that. There may be moral there, I don't know. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> write ridiculous steampunk comedy. I think is probably the answer, rather than yeah, anything I, 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 you might I write for a, right. for an MA. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. So yes, I think Any, anyway, right. we'll we'll talk a bit more about later about Toby and and, and his work. But I, I think the, the sort of format of this podcast is to talk about a particular novel, a favourite, or novel, or, or or any funny book, in fact, chosen by the guest. Yes, and uh, Toby has picked Lucky Jim by Kingsley Amis, mm. and I'll just uh, do a quick 
run through the facts on Kingsley Amos, go to see Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Where else? So Kingsley William Amos, CBE, 16th of April 1922 to 22nd of October 1995. He wrote uh, more than 20 novels, uh, six volumes of poetry, memoir, short stories, all sorts of stuff. He was nominated for his shortlist, rather, for the Booker Prize uh, three times and finally won it on the last occasion with the Old Devils. He started out as a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain and sort of moved rightwards for the rest of his life, I think. <laughs> yes, I think that's about <laughs> right. Rapidly, I think. <laughs> Rapidly, yes. I, I think if he was around now, he would um, He would be definitely, um, well, I don't like to think what he'd be definitely... Um, He'd definitely be on about, but um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think, yeah. I mean, I think Amos is one of those people who sort of started off as an angry young man and ended up as a sort of grumpy old bugger. And yeah, um, yeah, that, that's, that's a good, good summation, actually. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I've read three or four of his books, and I think Lucky Jim is the best one by a long way that I've read. Mm. And I've only, um, I've only read one, one other one, which was Take a Girl Like You, which I. I didn't like at all. No, I, I haven't read that one. So I, I'm considering this real, you know, this book on its own, really, and not not really as an mm. Amos fan. I mean, I don't. He, he seems to have become sort of, well, I mean, as we'll get into, possibly the kind of person that Lucky Jim, Jim Dixon, the hero of Lucky Jim, would have sort of railed against, actually, which is an interesting one. That's um, quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's. You, know, you you mentioned him being in the Communist Party, which is quite bizarre. But yeah. there is a sort of strong anti-establishment streak to this. Um, I mean, I've I've heard Lucky Jim grouped with the sort of angry young man movement of the nineteen fifties. It's yeah, it was published in nineteen fifty-four. Yeah. Um, so there is that kind of um, sense of you know post-war rebellion of the sort of young generation although I think it's a lot lighter than a lot of those sort of works were. Mm. I mean, I should probably say a bit about what it's about. Yeah. It's, it's about this young lecturer, Jim Dixon, James Dixon, who is at um, an unnamed university in the north somewhere. And he's a history lecturer, a very minor history lecturer. And um, he's sort of put upon by a range of kind of grotesque colleagues and superiors and throughout the novel Dreams of a Better Life elsewhere. And he gets involved in sort of college politics and a succession of dreadful adventures and his sort of fondness for drink and his desperation to escape lead him into increasingly weird scrapes to try and sort out his professional and private life and uh, yeah with, with hilarious consequences as they say but I think it is genuinely good you know a good piece of comedic writing which I think is why I've chosen it it's also a book that in some ways has aged badly which mm. I think also makes it quite interesting. Yes. And it raises some interesting issues about writing comedy as well, which is something that, you know, I've done in the Space Captain Smith books, just in case anyone was, who's read them was wondering. So, yeah, where to start, really? I mean, I think the things that happen in, in Lucky Jim are sort of all quite small-scale adventures, really, about one man. And, you know, obviously this is a book that's sort of set in the real world, there's nothing sort of grand about it. Quite a lot of it has that slightly Walter Mitty-ish thing of his daydreams and his sort of 
his way of coping with being put upon by these awful people, chiefly his dreadful boss, this man called Welsh, who is a sort of a kind of obnoxious, absent-minded professor. He's not a very likable man, and Welsh's dreadful son, who becomes Dixon's kind of rival, who um, is a pretentious artist called Bertrand. And quite a lot of the humour of the book comes from Dixon kind of coping mechanisms. I mean, there's there's a sort of reoccurring theme of him pulling faces when no one can see him, and all the faces have got ridiculous titles. There's one called his uh, his sex life in ancient Rome face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There is actually a documentary I once saw where King James pulls this face, which is sort of... That, that, kind that of, would be worth saying. Yeah, it's kind of pulling his mouth in and hugely inflating his cheeks to look slightly like kind of a, a demented cherub or possibly Pan or someone like that. Wow. Bacchus. So he has a variety of stupid faces that he pulls. And there are these kind of little bits of wish fulfillment. There's one line that, if I can just find it, I hope I've got it here. Yeah, that he sort of... He, his response is always quite polite and sort of put upon and um, hurt. But he uh, he has, there's one bit here where um, his girlfriend, who is this very difficult to the person who we'll come back to later, turns to him and says, do you hate me, James? She said. Dixon wanted to rush at her and tip her backwards in the chair to make a deafening rude noise in her face to push a bead up her nose. How do you mean? He asked. And it's... <laughs> It's that sort of thing that he's got this continuing sort of fantasy life. And he's just... There's tension between real life and what's going on inside, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And as the book goes on, he gets more and more desperate and crazed. And um, circumstances get worse and worse. And of course, the fantasy life starts to sort of push its way to the top. And he never quite pushes a bead up anyone's nose. But he does, at what's probably the climax of the novel, delivers the speech which is to the student body and his colleagues and boss, which is meant to be a celebration of Merry England and is a violent denouncing of not just Merry England, but the school, but the uh, university and everyone in it. We never get the full text of the speech. We get a description of how he gives it. And um, it's, it's very funny writing. And it results with him unsurprisingly, um, well, yeah, anyway, having serious consequences. I think... One of the less important ways in which the book is dated is this idea of it being post-war. And I don't know if there was a sort of fascination with old Englishness that came out of the 1950s, so Festival of Britain type stuff. Yeah, that's um, an interesting point. I hadn't sort of thought about that, but yeah. There are things that come up. He goes at one point to a sort of awful madrigal singing a party that he is expected mm. to participate in, which he doesn't know. As like being unable to sing or read music, and, and you know he, he had to wade into that. I mean, I wondered if it was something like you know you get sort of God Benjamin Britten or someone doing folk songs and stuff like that. And I wonder if there was a bit of a sort of nod to that in here, and that that's as close to politics as the book really gets, because Dixon in his Merry England speech, which a lot of the book is concerned with him trying to write this dreadful thing. He's sort of celebrating a kind of order that, that you know, he is a peasant in, and, and eventually he rebels against it. There is actually a, a great piece of prose about him writing the speech, which I think is a really good description. That I think anyone who's tried to write sort of heavy legal writing or heavy academic writing or something, sooner or later just stops after about an hour and thinks, what am I doing, you know? 
And so there's this little great bit of description that I found, which is this, as he writes his, uh, his article, this is an article on medieval shipbuilding that he's been required to write. Oh, yeah. And it says, the article's niggling mindlessness, its funereal parade of yawn-enforcing facts, the pseudo-light it threw upon non-problems. Dixon had read, or begun to read, dozens like it, but his own seemed worse than most in its air of being convinced of its own usefulness and significance. In considering this strangely neglected topic, it began. This what neglected topic? This strangely what topic? This strangely neglected what? And I think that's just a great bit of writing because it is just so such a clear capturing of that feeling of what the hell am I doing? This is bullshit. You know, yeah. you sort of start looking at the words and, and all sense drains out of them. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's Dixon's life at university is, is a good capturing of this feeling of being a functionary. You mean, know, do, being... you get, do you get the impression that he's any good? No. I get no. the impression that Dixon is, act, and this is, this is actually something that's, I think both a pro and a con to the book, is that I never get the feeling that Dixon is, a, is particularly good in terms of being skilled mm. or actually particularly likable as a man. I think he's one of those characters who are saved to an extent by the obnoxiousness and stupidity of the people around them. Um, a little bit like Black Adam, you know. Mm. That there's this sense that he's the le- the sort of least dreadful person in the book, and therefore yeah. he deserves to win. But so much of this book does rely on you following Dixon. It does rely on you saying, well, he's the guy I'm going to back, and mm. I want him to win. And everybody else in this book is an enemy, you know, is a rival or a problem that has to be solved. And I'm not going to think about their happiness at all, you know. I think you've just got to accept that, you know, mm, yeah. um, which is a problem. And I think it's 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 more of an issue now than it would have been back then. I yes, it, it, it certainly becomes a problem, particularly in the case of Margaret, I think. Yes. And, and in fact, probably, in fact, most of the women, in fact. Um, um, you mean both of the women? Well, both of yeah, apart from, <laughs> I mean, the only woman with any real agency is, 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 is the older woman, Carol Goldsmith, isn't she? Yeah, she's actually, uh, a, I mean, she's quite an interesting character, actually. Yeah. And I, I think it's, yeah, she's quite... she, she, she's, she's the wife of his colleague, isn't it? And, and yes, who is having an affair. The, the, mar- the, the marriage is sort of, sort of this be, becalmed, if you like. But it, it's, and it's she's rather, basically shagging around. Yes, it's this rather great weird of sort of pre-60s kind of polite sort of decorous affair that you know you seem to occasionally sort of stumble upon in books at this time yeah um, it, it, i mean it's all with his consent consent as well isn't it yes it is yes yeah. um cyril is it cecil or cyril but anyway yeah goldsmith himself yeah. Uh, the husband just doesn't seem to care <laughs> let's like, get on with it and yeah. uh yeah have our sort of adventures and i think that's actually quite grown up and quite sort of surprisingly mature Mm. Um, and she's treated quite well. There are the, the two, there's Mrs. Welsh, who is uh, the wife of Welsh, Dixon's boss, who is sort of um, probably a rather sort of stereotypical character, it's basically a, a sort of uh, argumentative snob, really, and the sort of person mm. that you would imagine Welsh to be married to. But I think the, the two main female characters are Christine and Margaret, and Margaret yeah. is another history lecturer, uh, Dixon's colleague, who is sort of his girlfriend, 
And Christine is the girlfriend of Welsh's awful son, Bertrand. Mm. And Christine is basically the woman that Dixon would like to have. And I mean, the primary reason for that, though, is, is basically that she belongs to Bertrand. That's, that's the primary <laughs> Yeah, I think it is. The, the, the fact that he actually fancies her is, is really quite secondary, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think reading Lucky Jim, it's unintentionally and in not a good way at all. I think it's quite an interesting insight into the male mind. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like sort of lifting this trap door on the sort of horrible crocodiles and sort of sewer below. You know, Dixon is, is in some ways, yeah, a, a, a pretty dreadful example of a, a sort of failed man. And yeah. I think one of the motivating factors in Dixon, and he almost says this at one point, is this kind of grievance that he isn't rich. And he, well, it says something, it's something like um, that he isn't the kind of man that money and attractive women gravitate to. There's a thing that the notion that women like this were never on view except as the property of men like Bertrand was so familiar to him that it had long ceased to appear in injustice. The huge class that contained Margaret was destined to provide his own women folk. <laughs> and, and it, it just goes on. It, it, it's, it's, it's horrendous. Yeah, I mean, that is that is awful, but it's also horribly true. Yeah. You know, and I, yeah, it, it's, it's horribly true because... In, in a sort of, you know, the kind of ghastly sort of social Darwinism that I should think the 50s probably had. Mm. And that's the sort of rigours of kind of, you know, class and background and accent and everything. It's probably true that someone like Margaret and someone like Dixon would end up together. Whether that's just or not, I don't know. And yeah, it is this sense of sort of, you know, this sort of quite crappy sort of male kind of, you know, why don't I have the life of James Bond? And the answer is, well, we haven't really earned it, have we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the... the, the, the I'm, I'm trying not to use the word problematic, which is one of my most hated words, but there's no doubt that the, the, the way the, the women are viewed is sort of uncomfortable. I mean, Margaret is, I think, a 50s reader, and perhaps the sort of... Well, back in the day, I think you as a writer I think you could be much more certain of the type of person you were expected to write towards so mm. that if you were in Fleming you were writing for you know men of a certain age and type yeah mm. and you don't you could write books as though a woman would never touch them and I think this is a bit the same that you know Margaret is a sort of comedy figure but if you were to stand back and look at this from a sort of from outside Dixon's point of view, he's a pretty wretched person, a pretty sad yeah. person, you know, <clears throat> who has clearly had a rough time. And is, I think back in those days, we were called a, a neurotic. And now we just say she's someone with issues, you know, someone with mm. sort of, you know, psychological problems or something. I mean, it's quite telling. There's, there's a, a TV version of Lucky Jim from, I think, the late 90s. With, um, is that the one with Stephen Tompkinson? Yes, and Robert yeah. Hardy, I think, as yes. well. She's very, very good. They're R- both great very casting. Good. Yeah, mm. it's very good. Annoyingly, I don't think it's ever come out on DVD or been shown again. Mm. But in that one, Margaret, who I think is played by Rebecca Front, actually, is treated much more kindly and actually gets a happy ending, which she deserves, you know, which she definitely deserves, and ends up with, I think, one of the other sort of comedy blokes. Um, who is an sort of enemy of Dixon's. So, you know, that kind of works out all right. It's Helen McCrory. Oh, okay. Right. Just yeah. look at IMDb. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
yeah, and that's fair, I think. At the end of the book, it doesn't say to give anything away, there's a sense that Dixon kind of leaves all these people behind and escapes. And, you know, I think we see at the end, we see Welsh and Bertrand and Margaret sort of looking as he jumps on a train and disappears, basically. Mm. And so leaves them to stew in their own juice. Fine. And there's actually a moment towards the end where he says he felt guilty about how much he'd hated Welsh, which kind of implies that Welsh might not actually be this sort of monster. But you've got to, in a way, this is very much a book from one man's point of view, so you have to almost accept this. The Mm. question really is whether you're willing to accept it and whether it's a step too far. Mm. Um, I've got to say, I don't think, I think where Lucky Jim is, is weaker is where Amos isn't being funny and is trying to say roughly intelligent things about men and women and the experience of dating and things like that. And I don't think that really works. There's Mm. a sort of chunk in the middle of the book where the characters go to a ball at at the university. And it's kind of, this is the plot bit. And I think that's the weakest part of the book because it's it's the, the least funny. And as a story about people, I'm not sure it's terribly strong. Uh, I, and I think that's that where Amos is, is, is least good. We see, I mean, Dickens himself does genuinely try at points to do right by people, but his definition of doing right by people is slightly different to what I would consider normal. You know? <laughs> um, it's rather odd. And there are a couple of moments, I think, where both Margaret and Dixon display more self-awareness than one would expect and suddenly seem like reasonable sensible people who are sort of at the end of a sort of somewhat unsuccessful relationship and talking themselves out of it Um, and then suddenly Bertrand turns up and he has to go and do some silly things so you know that's much better yes I mean the character Christine is pretty thin and Yeah. yeah the tv version actually pokes fun of this by having a moment where Dixon's, one of Dixon's little sort of daydreams is of her sort of floating down from the ceiling in the manner of an angel and uh, <laughs> sort of makes fun of his own. It's really horse, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's in everything. Everything, um, yeah. Absolutely. Must everything. be quite an early role for her, actually. 2003. Um, uh, yeah, I, I can think of a, well, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's one of her earlier ones. Yeah, and, and the, you know, that's really what she's there for, is just a sort of you know, object of his desire. Um, mm. Not exactly lust, but desire. So, yeah, I mean, the sexual politics of the thing are a disaster, really. <laughs> yes. Um, I think that's a, that's a fairly, fairly good summation, really. You know, but, and this is sort of quite a big but, I think. It's, it's, it's not ragingly obvious, I think, when I read the book, because it is, by and large so entertainingly written Mm. that that sort of thing doesn't really come up it's a bit like saying that Bertie Worcester is a social parasite I mean he is he's totally useless as a human being (laughs) but that issue never comes up you know because it's a world that's sort of where Bertie Worcester's well-being and success are what you actually want so yeah so I think that that's kind of the setting of Lucky Jim so you've got to kind of buy into him as a person and, and his sort of struggle I mean, I was thinking about this a little while back, and it occurs to me, just generally speaking, there are kind of two bases, two ways that this book is humorous, I think. I mean, they're very broad categories, but there's kind of contrast, and then there's exaggeration. Mm. And 
exaggeration is obviously where you take a, a simple idea, you know, and then just sort of carry it to its ridiculous extent, whereupon it becomes funny. I mean, there's a description towards the end of the book where Dixon's got to get this train really urgently. And he's stuck on a bus trying to get to the train station. Yes. And the bus driver is driving painfully slowly. And it, the ridiculousness builds up and up and up. Just then, the bus rounded a corner and slowed abruptly and stopped. Making a lot of noise, a farm tractor was laboriously pulling something that looked like the springs of a giant's bed, caked in places with earth and decked with ribbon-like grasses. Dixon thought he would really have to run downstairs and knife the drivers of both vehicles. <laughs> what next? What next? What actually would be next? A mask told up? A smash? Floods? A burst tyre, an electric storm with falling trees and meteorites, a diversion, a low-level attack by communist aircraft, sheep, the driver stung by a hornet. He chose the last of these, if consulted. Hawking its gears, the bus crept on, while every few yards, troops of old men waited to make their quivering way abroad. <laughs> and it yeah, goes on it, and on. You know, there, it goes on and on much further than you, you'd, you'd expect it to do, and it keeps going. Yeah, it's, and, and it's great. Uh, and I think that is funny because it, it is gross, you know, grossly exaggerated, and it's just ridiculous. Mm. And I, I and, think and there's that, a rhythm to it as well, isn't there? Yes, yes. That that whole sort of um, what next, what next, what actually would be next is sort of classic rhetorical device, I think. And the way that the ridiculous, totally ridiculous options to communist attack are broken up by things like sheep, you know, is is just great because it's it's a high high flung concept deflated by ridiculous little ideas and the other thing is, is contrast you know there's a famous description of, uh, of a hangover in lucky yeah. jim which i think is, is is probably one of the best sort of descriptions of, of being drunk ever yeah and i'll just see if i can find it and that okay here we are dixon was alive again consciousness was upon him before he could get out the way not for him the slow gracious wanderings from the halls of sleep but a summary forcible ejection his ace brawled, too wicked to move, spewed up like a broken spider crab on the tarry shingle of the morning. The light did him harm, but not as much as looking at things did. He resolved, having done it once, never to move his eyeballs again. A dusty thudding in his head made the scene before him beat like a pulse. His mouth had been used as a latrine by some small creature of the night, and then as its mausoleum. During the night, too, he'd somehow been on a cross-country run, and then been expertly beaten up by secret police. He felt bad. And, and I think that's a great description, especially yeah. the bit about the uh, small creature knight using his yeah, mouth. The mausole and, mausole yeah, the mausoleum. Mausoleum is, is a fantastic word. Yeah, and, and the reason that works for me so well is the contrast in it, the high and the low you've got there. Mm. And that will be far less funny if it said a mouse had peed and died in his mouth. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the grand language and the, to you used to describe this, a course experience of waking up with a dreadful hangover. And I think that's what makes that so good. And it, you know, the book uses this a lot. And of course, you've got that also in the exaggeration where you, you've got yeah. this sort of banal experience of being on a bus that's going way too slowly and being annoyed. Do you want another piece of trivia about, uh, about that hangover? Yeah, uh, I was hunting around for stuff on on YouTube this morning, mm -hmm. and I came across a re recording from 
the launch of World Book Night in 2011. Oh, yeah. Can you guess who chose that bit to read? Oh, World Book Night 2011. Salman Rushdie. No. <laughs> that, would, that would be interesting. Oh, it was actually the, um, the Mayor of London, uh, one Boris Johnson. Oh, my God, really? Oh, yep. God. Oh, bloody <laughs> hell. Oh, the company we keep, God. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I like to think that Jim Dixon would have deeply disapproved of Boris Johnson, yeah. uh, who is a sort of a man who wishes he was in the P.G. Woodhouse novel, but a man who wishes he was, he was Bertie and actually is closer to Spode. <laughs> but I'll move on. Move, <laughs> so, on. move on, move on quickly. Move on, on briefly, yeah. yes. Yeah. Bit of politics for you there, ladies and gentlemen, as Ben Elton would say. Um, yeah. So you've got these two types of humour, exaggeration and contrast. And I think almost every joke that isn't a pun plays on these things. Mm. And I was thinking about the stuff I've written and how much of the jokes in Space Captain Smith are either exaggerations or sort of ridiculous ideas, you know, a race of intelligent lemming people, you know, Mm. and their society based around being a lemming, or their contrasts, you know, the contrast between you know, Isbard Smith's sort of high ideals as an officer of the British Empire, space empire, and, you know, his, his pilot, Polycarveth, just wanting to survive and get drunk. You know, and so often you get that. Bizarrely enough, um, <laughs> everybody's favourite comedic writer, George Orwell, um, had some... <laughs> <laughs> talked about, I think he called it San- Sancho Panza and Don Quixote, that you have the high-minded, respectable man and his drunken, bawdy sidekick. And the two kind of humour of the experience kind of is, is this sort of... Well, there's the same thing you get in the kind of buddy cop story, isn't it? Where you've got the by-the-book mm. man and the wacky man. You know, the contrast is what makes the thing interesting. But the other thing is that both of those have got to be recognisable. And you've got to be able to see yourself or sympathise with the person. And the logic of, say, the comparison has to be there. Yeah, that bus example works because everybody's been on a bus or a car journey or whatever where it's going too bloody slowly and they can see the clock counting down and they know that they're very, very close to missing their train and all the rest of it. And I think going back to what we were saying about Dixon and Amos and and the female characters, that might be where the book falls down is that can you identify with this or are you yeah. sort of pushed away from yeah, it? Yeah, that, that is a good point because it sort of, yeah, it, it, it leaves a bit of a nasty taste in their mouth at times, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the humour at that point in the 1950s probably wasn't cruel, but yeah, now yeah. has a slightly cruel edge to it. I mean, it's like what I was saying about Blackadder. You know, the reason Blackadder is sympathetic is because he's surrounded by morons. You know, and, and sort of completely objectionable people. Mm. And he's the closest thing to a normal, sane person. And I think for a 50s reader, I think Dickman would have been definitely been the closest thing to a normal, sane person. I think now he's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, I've got to say, you know, he's pretty close to the most normal, sane reader, uh, sane yeah. person, but he probably isn't quite there. So, yeah, yeah. Mm. I think he feels like perhaps, perhaps not perhaps not much of a nastier person, but a weaker person than the Amos might have intended. Mm. You know, a more needy, sort of desperate man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing about being recognisable 
is that what I've said about Dixon being kind of, you know, perhaps not you know, a man at the time. I think the main motivation of him is quite familiar to anybody who's worked in an office or a big institution of this kind of frustrated rage that's there, you know, of why do I have to deal with these idiots? And sense of him biting his lip and going quietly mad with fury, you know, of him having to pull his pull his face when no one's looking. There's one bit where Welsh is giving him this sort of tedious diatribe about how to write an essay. And he just has this mental image of picking Welsh up, running down the corridor, putting his feet into a lavatory basin and then just flushing <laughs> it repeatedly whilst laughing madly. And then it, the book kind of comes back to the present and Welsh is just saying, and that's what you ought to do. And I think it's, it's, that is a very familiar feeling, you know. And so justified or unjustified, that feeling of being cheated by life, I think is really sort of, is recognisable. I think a lot of people recognise yeah. that. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> I think it's still at bottom is a very readable book. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I certainly enjoyed reading it. I mean, I, I hadn't read it since, God, I think I first read it around about 19, early 80s. Yeah. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I read it almost once sitting on a Greyhound bus crossing America. And I haven't looked at it really since. And I, I obviously I remembered bits of it, but not quite a few bits I didn't remember at all. But uh, I still enjoyed it, um, but with a slightly more awareness that, wasn't quite right about the uh, you know the, the, the way the women were portrayed yeah yeah well, wasn't quite right wasn't right at all but, no um, i mean no i i think we just as a society have much more sympathy for people who you know are troubled or are just not life's winners you know hmm. one thing that does strike me about the ending of of the book and i don't think it really damages the book to, to give away its ending is Dixon gets away from this academic life and goes away to work for, for this millionaire character mm. and yes he's got away from these people but is that really a big step up? No, I'm not I sure it is like... <sighs> maybe it is for him yeah I don't yeah. know and that, that, that too is interesting so I don't know I, I really don't know about that I, I think because for me, I can buy into this world at, at quite easily, in the way I couldn't with the other Amos books I've read, by the way. Mm. Because I could buy into it, I felt fine. You know, that, that's, that's what he gets. And you sort of suspend disbelief or suspend disapproval, almost. <laughs> um, and maybe that's the skill of a good writer, you know, to sort of pull you along with their, with their worldview. And I'm sure there are people out there reading Ian Fleming books and all kinds of you know older writers, you know John Buchan and oh, some of the these. some of the early Bond books are terrible. Oh, I bet, you know. I, I've 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 been recently I've, I've sort of began a project a few years back to just just go through them all in sequence and and they're, they're weird. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it's almost like is it. Yeah, what are, what are women really like? I don't understand them at all. They're strange people with odd habits, and, and they're like aliens. Well, actually, and, I mean, I, I don't know if I can. This is slightly off topic, I guess. But I was reading um, *Dead Triffids* by John Wyndham a while back, hmm. which again is fifties, and it's such a prescient, clever bit of science fiction. 
you know, it's 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 a very good depiction of, of coll the collapse of society, of the ways people survive. It's it's a zombie novel before the zombies were mm. invented. You know, it's got shuffling mutant plant. They're, they're just like zombies. You know, it does everything like that, but the way it doesn't work is the women. Yeah. And I sort of feel that Wyndham doesn't so much regard women as inferior as just as insane. You know, there's, there's just a sense that, oh, they just do crazy stuff. You know, yeah. even the clever ones do crazy stuff. You know, it's just like their response is, is like you roll a dice and pick a number, you know. And I think you run into this in these, these older male writers, you know, mm. this idea that, oh, well, they're all just crazy. We can't do anything about that, you know. And, <laughs> Well, it, it, like a, it goes back to Freud, doesn't it? The, 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 the question that no one can answer is, is what, do, what do women want? Yeah, and, and almost asking that weird question is, is sort of, <laughs> even the question is a bit strange. <laughs> yeah. um, why not ask? You know, yeah. Because um, yeah. the implication, I suppose, of the question being asked like that is that they won't be able to answer it because <laughs> they're too crazy. <laughs> you know? Oh, God. Oh, and God, yeah. yeah, it's 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 this thing. I think you see this in older male writers, and they sense yeah. you can just get away with this. But I think if you look at modern writers, even ones who who aren't sort of writing from a, you know, obviously feminist perspective or something, that the answer is simply, you know, most animals, <laughs> male or female, will not put their hand in a fire and will take it away if they do. You know, there's a logic to the way human beings behave and animals behave. Mm -hmm. And both men and women operate to, to a basically logical system, you know, <laughs> but they didn't seem to realise that back then. So, no. yeah, so that, that's Wyndham for you. Well, Wyndham yeah. is brilliant, you know, I've got to say. Oh, Wyndham yeah. Is, is I haven't read him for years, actually. Well, it's still very, very good. Yeah. The Kingsley Amos was, was famously a big fan of science fiction, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He wrote a book called... Uh, uh, be before it was sort of trendy for literary types to do so, I think. Yeah, he wrote a book called New Maps of Hell. Which is good, actually. His sort of criticism stuff is really quite good. And yeah, it's well worth a look still. Yeah, New Maps of Hell, it's called. Already even made a Space Captain Smith. <laughs> I don't know if he would have got the joke. Uh, <laughs> gosh, that's a really good question. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. We should, maybe we should talk a bit about. Uh, about uh, yeah. And actually, before we go on to Space Captain Smith, I mean, I, mm. I guess sort of Space Captain Smith is, is, is sort of more the remit of, of this podcast but i'd also like to talk a bit about the renaissance fantasy novels yeah sure i actually I, I read up to the throne a couple of weeks back and i oh, really right. enjoyed it oh good and good. I, I sort of I, I i don't know how you feel about me saying this but i i, I kind of felt it was as if someone had said to lee child uh try writing a renaissance fantasy and, and see how that goes <laughs> and I, i'm a big fan of lee child and I, there's a sort of directness to it that, that, that I, yeah. I, I really liked. I, I, I could, I, I, no, I, I'm going to take that as a compliment, definitely. <laughs> um, I just wish I had Lee Child's money. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, true. I mean, for a man who allegedly lives off coffee and weed, he, he can, you know, knock out a good book. Was that libelous? I don't know. I don't think it is. <laughs> I think he said that in the Sunday Times once. I'm sure you can cut that. But yeah, yes, I, I, I know what you mean. And I think it is very much a thriller. And yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine who writes crime a little while back and she made the point that the thriller structure doesn't matter where you set it or what kind of, you know, Western or uh, a science fiction story or wherever. It's a way of plotting rather than a setting, you mm. know, which is why High Noon, for example, has been remade in all kinds of different ways because it's a story. Yeah. 
What's yeah. the Seven Samurai, um, Magnificent Seven, Battle Beyond the Stars? Um, yeah. How many, how many other ones are there? There's um, oh, the Bugs Life. Is it Bugs Life? No, no, it's the um, Ants. Is it? No, it's, it's Bugs. It's Bugs Life. Is because Ants is the Bugs Life is the Pixar one. Right. I think is sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> rambling off again. And, and, no, no, that makes sense. I mean, these are, yeah. you know, these are fundamentally stories, not settings. Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. So yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm glad that Up the Thrones moves in that way, and and the sequel, um, Blood Underwater. Yeah, has, I'm looking forward to reading that one now. Actually. Yeah, again, that's got that sort of structure. Um, it comes from all kinds of different places. Um, the fancy stuff. I mean, I was thinking about it a very long time ago, almost 20 years ago or something. The first mm. ideas of it. Um, I remember so it you working on it, but back yeah. in those. Back in the days before you got into Captain, sorry, Captain Smith. Yeah, I mean, I sort of put it away for 10 years and then came back and thought, yeah. wow, let's give this another go. And yeah, yeah, I mean, I did want to write a thriller and that's what it is. And it's got sort of side plots and mm. all the rest of it. But it's it's mainly about, you know, this sort of forward movement of, you know, will, will this woman kill this man? And, mm. um, and that's kind of the whole plot and the various complexities that come in, you know, partly caused by her trying to kill him and partly because, you know, he's up to other stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, mean, I loved writing it. You know, it's very mm. enjoyable to write. After Smith, it was nice to write a book that didn't have any jokes in, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so when's, when's the third one coming out? I'm sure you said it was a trilogy. Or you... Yes, it will be. I, I mean, I've got it in rough, is the answer, but very mm. rough. And it's, I, I've left it for a, a little while. I want to go back to it and sort of have another look, which might, might mean I really like it. Might mean I just write it all again. Um, <laughs> I have to see. I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you leave a manuscript for long enough, sometimes it can feel stale and sometimes mm. it can be fine. And I don't quite know why it's one and not the other sometimes. So we'll have yeah, to see. I, I, I don't know. My, my manuscripts, they either peter out at about a thousand words or they just keep going to the end and um, and that's it yeah uh, there's, there's no middle ground for in my case which is a bit odd interesting so, uh, yeah. yeah yeah so yes I, I do intend to do that that's, that's certainly on the list there's just been uh, partly the pandemic has sort of thrown writing quite a lot you know I found myself at points writing an awful lot and other points writing very little yeah and uh, I was working on something that was very long before the pandemic and when it started and things were looking bad I thought well I really ought to get this done you know I'm so close to the end I don't... so I sort of cracked on with some other work basically mm. so yeah we'll, we'll have to see um but I do intend to do it it's certainly on the yeah. list yeah uh, I would you, you actually sort of were possibly saying a bit about about the difference between writing a straight thriller to to to, to a comic novel mm. And what are the, I mean, are there similarities as well? I mean, I, that, one of the things about, I guess, about the Space Captain Smith books is that, you know, despite all, all the daft stuff that's going on, there is a plot and there is a driver to, to, to the story. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I suspect this is probably something you've run into as well, mm. that you do have to have a coherent plot. Yeah, you, you can't just have a bunch of gags one after the other. No. You, you need something to hang it on. I mean, I think you possibly could just have a book with a bunch of gags, but I don't think it would be half as good. No. I think if you have a book that is, there's got to be a sort of solidity to a book, a novel, and mm. part of that means having good characters and having characters who you find interesting, and 
not doing things like breaking the fourth wall and not saying I will put in any gag I can do. You know, unbelievably, there's actually stuff I cut out of Space Cowboys because <laughs> it wasn't good enough. Yeah. You know, and there were things where I felt this joke isn't good enough or it's not right for these characters or something like that. So, yeah, there, there is a certain integrity you have to have to the book, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. It's got to function as a story, even if that story is a fairly simple story. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's and it's right. got to fit into the particular world that you've you, you've sort of created, haven't you? Uh, yeah, and, and it's got to be consistent with that. Yeah, um, I I can remember writing. I think it might be the third book, Russell Lemming Men, writing a joke and then thinking, no, Smith isn't that stupid. You know, mm. that gag works as a joke, but I can't put it in because he's not not quite stupid enough to actually do that, and so it had to come out. You know, and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. You you make these decisions as to what what lengths you're going to go to or what you're going to do to be funny. And sometimes you stop being funny for the sake of being good. You know, for writing a good novel. Mm. But yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. So there is an overlap. Of course, there's always this. You know, with with anything science fiction or fantasy. And I suspect anything else. There's always this pleasure of creating, isn't there? Of making a little world, you know, even mm. if the world is sort of, you know, describing what goes on in a railway car or something, you know, you're creating a little world and there's always the pleasure of making that. And that world has to have its own kind of logic. Um, yeah, I, I think that it, I, I'm not sure it, it only applies to science fiction as well, because I, one no. of my favorite bits of world building, have you ever read uh, Malcolm Price's Aberystwyth novels? No. Aberystwyth I remember one them. more, Last Tango in Aberystwyth, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's it's this weird sort of alternative sort of alternative version of Aberystwyth with druids and <laughs> and there's this sort of Vietnam myth to it as well, which goes back to a, a war in Patagonia, <laughs> which of course is where they speak Welsh. And, and there's <clears throat> it's full of all sorts of bizarre stuff. Uh, there's uh, there's hollowed a corruption around what the butler saw machines and, 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 and it's, it's just fantastic stuff. I mean, is that um, an example it, of that, the contrast I mentioned earlier, where you've got that sort yes. of rather parochial small town Wales, yeah. but you've yeah. got these sort of dramatic, you know, yes, grand very events. much so, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that was one of the things, of course, about Space Captain Smith is that you know, so much of it is this kind of mild parochial sort of Englishness of him, mm. you know his obsession with drinking tea and, and all that kind of stuff, yeah. but thrown against these sort of galactic battles, you know, which I think mm. is, is, is sort of inherently funny. So, and, yeah. and you've got the one, the wonderful mix of, of characters that you got in, in your sort of on, on, on board your, your main ship, you know, Space Captain Smith himself, <laughs> Polly Carveth, the pilot who's a repurposed pleasure bot, isn't she? With, 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 with the My Little Pony fixation. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Surik, yes, like Surik the slave is a wonderful character. He's this psychopathic Morlock who collects skulls for for a hobby. Um, <laughs> yes. And then Rihanna, the the, the hippie who, who's, I mean, she, she would be totally on the Goop mailing list. <laughs> and, yes, yeah. receiving weird candles from Greenwich. <laughs> oh no, I was thinking about the candles, but yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, 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 no, I'm not going to go into more detail. But, um, no, no. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely, she used to have weird crystals and things. I mean. Obviously, they're they're all sort of parodies of different things. Perhaps mm. Carveth a bit less. Big. Um, I mean, the great thing about having a sort of set of characters like that is you can play them off against each other. Well, and, I mean, and, that's just what I was about to say. Uh, yeah. I mean, 
the, the, the advantage is that no matter who's in the room at any one time, they can yeah. have an argument. Yes. And, yeah. uh, and of course, out of those arguments, you get you get jokes, you know, because yeah. you get that sort of contrast. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what makes them funny and entertaining, is that they're such different people. And, and they have this sort of ridiculous life together, <laughs> stuck on the spaceship. With Gerald the hamster as well, of course. With Gerald the hamster, who, who is yeah. just a hamster. I always wanted to do a parody of Flowers for Algernon where he, he got a brain and it slowly decreased as the story went along. But uh, I never got around to it. It's one of the things I never did. And it, it was going to turn out to be a practical joke with Carveth actually writing his diary entries for him. But um, I never got around to that. So, yeah, yeah, um, it, it was, you know, they're obviously, I mean, Surik in particular, they're all spoofs of science fiction-y things. I mean, Rihanna is... I sort of partly imagine Rihanna as oh, Deanna Troy from Star Trek, who was a sort of ship psychic and mm. would say sort of vague and insipid things. Um, usually I'm sensing hostility whilst aliens were torpedoing the spacecraft. <laughs> uh, and she was a sort of bit of a parody of psychics in, in science fiction. But, you know, Surak, of course, is, is kind of a parody of every single warrior alien race ever. And it's a Klingon predatory monstery thing. Yeah, but they work together as a team, and that's what makes mm. them entertaining. You know, you've yeah. got to have that. Yeah. yeah. And you've actually, you've, you, and you've built an interesting selection of supporting characters that sort of uh, keep re- 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 recurring. <laughs> yes. Like Wayne Scott. Yes, Wayne Scott. Yeah, Wayne Scott. I don't think he was meant to reoccur, but he keeps reoccurring. And he's sort of, he, he's sort of that kind of insane army officer. You know, who who sort of crops up in the in the footnotes of sort of World War Two uh, you know yeah. events, having sort of destroyed a tank with an umbrella and things like this. Um, someone actually it, wants... did, did you say what's his old Wingate sort of was, was this? Yeah, there's a bit of Wingate. The kind in of, kind of, yeah, I think that's where the walking around with no clothes on comes out. Yeah, because <laughs> apparently yeah. he used to do that. <laughs> so, absolute homicidal maniac. Yeah. Where you sort well, of the, want the... that. How would someone like that fit in society? Sorry. I'm sure I read one story about one of his men who was seriously injured and uh, got sort of was, was keeping them behind. So we volunteered to just do sort of, well, actually, they volunteered him to um, kill himself or to, to die back behind them. And uh, he was sort of left to fend for his own devices. And then he actually got better and survived and sort of went back to join them. And said, oh, fine, you're back again. And there's no sort of remo- no sort of recriminations or anything because he was it was all oh, part right. of the part of the thing. And he sort of goes, he would go along to reunions and stuff, <laughs> that sort of thing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy who, who you abandoned, but um, it, it's it's good. I'm cool with it. <laughs> yeah, it's quite some alien mentality, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing you'd expect, I, I, I don't know, you know, someone in the Middle Ages to do or something, or Roman or something. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. But there is this sort of, I, I don't know if they're still around, but there, there seems to have been this tradition of kind of military lunacy, um, mm. eccentricity to the point of being really quite mad. And Wayne yeah. Scott is a kind of parody of that. Uh, and there's a sort of running joke that they've sprung him from hospital and he doesn't want to go back and is keen to keep the war going for as long as humanly possible so he doesn't have to go back to wherever it was they were keeping him for the good of society so yes yes i mean he's he's you know he's reliable because he generates entertaining events as mm. well 
Disney features up something is going to blow I mean, you, up. You said you didn't expect him to be a recurring character. I mean, character, do you find that with, with someone someone strolls into your book and and sort of starts stealing scenes and you think, oh, actually, we'll keep him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do. And I find that in not just in comedy. I find that with a lot of stuff mm. that you get someone and you think, oh, actually, you know, we, we can make something out of this. You know, this, this yeah. guy is interesting. It, it's usually because they... They uh, play, as you say, they play off another character really well, mm. and and it sometimes takes a little while to kind of get the hang of how they're going to function in that way, and and sometimes you get this with other aspects of characters. I mean, the whole the whole pony jokes with Polly Carves mm. come in actually. I think really the third book is where it really starts. It might be the end of the second, but this idea that you know she's got this sort of childish fixation with, with small horses sort of comes in a bit later and it's just funny and just gets increasingly stupid as it goes on mm. I thought yeah that's good there's also a character called Rick Dreckett who was only yeah. in the first book as a parody of Harrison Ford in Blade Runner mm. as a bounty hunter and again he just seemed entertaining so I thought oh, we'll keep him in you know we'll, we'll mm. do more with him but on he's, the other he's hand also the, the love interest for Polly Carver isn't he? yes he is he's yeah. another android <laughs> yes <laughs> yes sort of long-suffering man <laughs> yeah and he sort of you know exists in this kind of private eye world of kind of whiskey and and, and cigarette smoke for no clear reason and she exists yeah. in a strange world of, of of you know strong liquor and ponies so um yeah it, they don't <laughs> they don't really suit each other very well i mean there are other points where you have to realize that things have to go i got to the end of the fifth book uh, end of empires I realised there were absolutely no more jokes to be told about lemmings, you know. Mm. I thought, I've done everything. You know, I've done everything. I've done storing food in your cheeks. I've done going to sleep for a long time. I've done jumping off cliffs. You know, I've done every single joke I can think about with lemmings I've done, and this is now finished. <laughs> and, um, mm. You know, and that's why <laughs> they, they, they sort of end at that bit. Yeah. You know, and you think, okay, that's the end of that, and you've just got to accept it. There are a few more ant jokes, of course, because they carry on. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And, and I think when you write, I think sometimes people think with comedy that you just kind of cut loose and go a bit crazy. But I think actually it requires a lot of control. Oh, it does. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. Yeah, a real tightness. Yeah. 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 I mean, do you ever find yourself when you're writing, you know, comedy writing, do you find yourself agonizing over a, a word or something oh, like God, that? Oh, God, yeah. 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 That's interesting. Because, yeah. <clears throat> and, and, and again, that comes back to, to 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 getting the right rhythm, which is even more important, I think, for comedy than than um, straight writing. I, yeah, it just need, needs the right rhythm. To, it sort of triggers the same. I think I think it seems triggers the same sort of senses in the brain for for, for comedies that that the, the rhythm and the comedy sort of seem to get the same sort of things. It's going. Yeah, is I that, think is that's that true. Right. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think that's true. There is a definite rhythm to comedy. I mean, it, it's. I'm always impressed by people who can write funny lyrics. One person I, I, I really like is Tom Lehrer. Oh God, yes. And I, I think he's Tom a genius. Lehrer. Yeah. And mm. his skill in in writing amusing rhymes, I think, is brilliant. Mm. Because a rhyme comes at the end of a sentence is almost a punchline in itself, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I think his his ability to to come out with his brilliant rhymes is just fantastic. You know. Mm. And the yeah. wordplay that he can come out with um, is, is amazing. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think you do end up picking words very carefully. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm. Um, I think wordplay is, is difficult. You know, if you watch, I don't know. Uh, I mean, Ronnie Barker was very good at wordplay. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, his um, stuff is, obviously it's all very sort of dated, but his, his wit in sort of using words is incredibly good, you know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that takes a real, a real skill, you know. Mm. I always say this, that com- comedy isn't treated seriously, which oh no, doesn't make you, sense, I, think I agree with you one hundred percent, which is partly why I set up this podcast. <laughs> that's almost entirely why I said that. It's also to, for something to do, you know. But uh, <laughs> anyway. yeah, well, I mean, I, I was just going to say I completely agree with you that there is this sense that certainly in in, in our culture, you know, in uh, English-speaking literary writing or whatever, there's this idea that a good book is a difficult, unfun book, mm. you know, and that things that are enjoyable are disposable, which is why I suspect something like, I don't know, Raymond Chandler's crime novels have taken so long to be recognised as good writing. Yeah. You know, when mm. I think they are terrific writing. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and there are a lot of people out there writing crime novels and genre novels which aren't very well written. But when they are, you know, you think this is this is really good. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw that. Do you know uh, the complete Molesworth? Oh yes. That's now a Penguin classic, which I'm glad to yeah. see. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, a wonderful so book. Right? So it should be. I, I did think about talking about that, but of course it's full of pictures, which isn't very helpful. So you know, this one of the company. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think I'd like someone someone to take that on on this. I'll, I'll yeah like, just put yeah. it out there if, if any potential guests are listening yeah, we'll, I'd, I'd be receptive to that <laughs> <laughs> so is, is there going to be a book seven of space captain smith hard to say it's really difficult to answer that one i mean i'm i'm very very wary of um hammering it to death yeah. and i can think That's of certain long-running possibly science fiction series that have done that and i'm very wary of of series that just slowly fade away you know and you and and you end up thinking yeah i'll buy the next one maybe it'll be as good as the one before and you think mm. that over three or four books and i do think that the space six you know sex trilogy, whatever that is double trilogy double barrel trilogy i think they're all pretty good you know and i'm mm. pleased with them all i think they've all got yeah, funny no, stuff in so right. I don't know. One thing that's often appealed to me would be to write a spin-off. Yes. Yeah. You know, to do the equivalent of sort of Frasier from Space Captain Smith's Cheers, mm. um, which is a really weird comparison. Actually, Sirk and his brother, <laughs> they would they would make a great Actually, that, that would that would be that would work. That, that would is totally work. Because I, I loved Surik's family. <laughs> yeah, yes. They were great. Yes. Uh yeah. sort of over civilized brother Morgar, who's now an architect yeah. and yeah. yeah. Is is this sort of uh, is it Niles or Miles? I can't remember now, but yeah, it's the equivalent. Yeah, Niles. Yeah, yeah. So yes, uh, that could work. I mean, there's a couple yeah. of other characters who never quite got the amount of jokes they had. There's a character who's seen very briefly, who is a bodyguard, a robot bodyguard, who is a reprogrammed nanny, and I've always thought there's endless gags to be had there. Uh, so there's a few other characters. The Secret yeah. Service characters were a lot of fun. I mean, they're yeah. much more character, you know, they're much more parodies of, of recognizable parodies, but they mm. were fun to write. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, I think it's got legs, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think that's true. I think it could work. Yeah. I think the other advantage of spin offs, of course, is that they don't have to keep do the same things as the original mm. and the tone can change or, you know, yeah. the, the, the sort of 
I don't know, the, the kind of joke that powers the whole thing. Because, I mean, Frasier is about, you know, class and these these two, sort of, these three people stuck in the same place who are very different people mm. and sort of social posing and so on, which I don't remember Cheers as being. No, it's, it's, a, it's a different thing altogether. I mm. mean, they're both, both excellent series, but in, in totally different ways. Yeah. And I think it gives you a chance to kind of do that. Yeah. So, yeah, some sort of spin-off will be fun, but I will have to think about that because there's so much going on <laughs> in it. So, so what, what else are you working on? Or do, or can you tell us or, or do you want to okay. uh, keep it uh, yeah, uh, I can. under wraps? I've written some more fantasy, which isn't connected to Julia and her adventures in the Renaissance, which I am currently looking for a publisher for, which is much longer and is about a group of people and their sort of adventures. And that is something that uh, my agent is currently looking to find a publisher for. Last year, because I didn't really have anything to write, I just started randomly writing a science fiction novel, which is set in the uh, extreme future on another planet that's been colonised and left to its own devices. And I wanted to write something that was really quite wacky. And that's it. You know, so I'm currently writing this sort of Mm. wacky science fiction thing, which is a lot of fun to do, actually. I I wanted to write something that was neither recognisably a sort of fantasised version of a past of the, you know, the world, as as is the sort of Julia's Renaissance and the fantasy stuff, or recognisably sort of Space Captain Smith, Britain in the future kind of thing. And this is just an entirely different sort of strange world, you know, full of made-up monsters and fun things like that. Mm. And that was a lot of fun to write. And I'm currently writing it at yeah, the moment. Sounds fun. Yeah, it is. It's it's just kind of, is it cool? Yes, I'll stick it in then. And it's nice to write some science fiction that's sort of totally up in the air, you know, totally mm. bizarre. And that's that's been a lot of fun. I think that's going to be a single novel when I finish it. Mm. And um, I'm hoping to get that finished in the next few months, actually. So that, that's that's fun. Uh, the working title, and it probably changes, The Sea of Beasts. And yeah, that's what I'm doing at the moment. I, I'm wondering... really interesting. Yeah, I'm, mm. I'm wondering if I should alternate doing something serious with something funny. I wonder if that's the way <laughs> to go. Uh, that might be the answer. So yeah, yeah, that's what I'm doing at the moment. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh, I've really enjoyed... Uh talking to you yeah it's been it's uh, been really good great it's been really good to speak to you again after all these years (laughs) yes indeed. it's been it's been a while i mean we've sort of interacted online but it's been a while since we actually spoke yeah yeah we'll have to do uh, this again yes indeed yeah if you've enjoyed this or even if you haven't but just feel sorry for us please feel free to reward us by buying our books you can find the details (laughs) on our respective websites toby's is www.tobyfrost.com and mine is www w.jonathanpinnock.com and do please subscribe you'll find this podcast in all the usual places next time i'll be talking to isabel rogers about seller and yateman's 1066 and all that as well as oh. our excellent stockwell park orchestra series see you then cool right that went very well i think i thought it went very well <laughs>